lot of people are coming to the table either being really, really afraid to ever slow down in their lives or really, really afraid to ever speed up in their lives. <laughs> what we know to be true is that there's nothing wrong with working hard or long hours or moving really fast and having a lot going on. The problem with that is if it is unrelenting and it never changes. Welcome to Intersections, where we navigate the crossroads of ideas, mapping the contours of knowledge and belief through the stories and lives of influential voices. According to a recent report, 59% of American workers experience a moderate level of stress and burnout. Mental health issues have negatively affected the job performances of 46% of the U.S. workforce, a significant increase over 2021, which is 34%. But are there practices and habits we can put into our lives to manage the ongoing stresses of life, family, and work? With unprecedented polarization that has divided families, religious institutions, and communities, is it possible to not simply endure these external forces, but rather create spaces in our lives where we can be rejuvenated in order to help contribute to a better world? Janice McWilliams is a psychotherapist, spiritual director, writer, and speaker. She has a master's degree in pastoral counseling and is the author of the book, Restore My Soul, Reimagining Self-Care for a Sustainable Life. She works with individuals and organizations, helping people find positive ways to manage anxiety and stress by developing their inner being in order to be of greater service to others and experience a more meaningful life. Janice McWilliams, Welcome to Intersections. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You write that you've been in the business of soul care for over 30 years. What is soul care? That's a great question. I think of it in a couple of different ways. Um, soul care certainly can mean tending to a person's relationship with God or their the spiritual side of their lives. Um, so there's that. I also think of soul care is having to do with helping people tend to their inner experiences, just their inner world. Um, and that that's what leads me to kind of thinking about the realms that I address in, the, in my book, but the realms of, of thoughts and emotions and just life rhythms and fulfillment. I think that, that all of those areas relate to um, our inner experiences and then end up being the things that help us tend our soul really well. So those are the kind of the two, two ways I think of it. Is there a particular reason you wrote the book, uh, your book, Restore My Soul at this time? Yes, <laughs> there is. I've been in practice doing psychotherapy for about 12 years now. And I was starting to realize that no matter what people came in to talk to me about, uh, whether it, it was, you know, they were dealing with depression or anxiety, or they had external stressors like relationship issues, or their children were really suffering, or they had illness or someone in their family, you know, had illness or job crisis or whatever, that it seemed like no matter what we were working on, that there always came the point in the session which when we would be talking about, okay, how how can you do some things to start to feel better the rest of today? Uh, you know, tomorrow when you wake up, what can you do to help 
help yourself in, in your inner experience, your inner world, your soul to feel more steady and kind of and, and okay in the midst of all this that you're dealing with. And so my, my thinking, I, I started realizing like, oh, there are these four realms. It seems like I, I talk about the same thing over and over again with people because these, these four realms of kind of self-care that deals with the inner world seem to be what I bring to every person I work with, no matter what's going on or what's causing their distress, you know, in addition to, to, to working on whatever's causing their distress, we are always like, okay, so, but how can you feel better? Um, this started to really take shape um, before the pandemic um, world relief is a refugee resettlement organization that um, has its headquarters in Baltimore. And they, I'd done some Enneagram trainings with them and they called me and said, Hey, can you, can you do a self-care seminar or workshop for our refugee or caseworkers? And, um, and I was like, yeah, sure. You know, I have, <laughs> I've never done one, but I thought like, that'd be great. I'll, I'll do that. And, and that seminar helped me sort of isolate the, the idea of these kind of realms that I've been talking about. And, and I um, had the workshop and realized like, wow, there are these people who are so um, passionate about what they do and they are suffering so much doing it. And so there was, there was something that was happening for me. Like, this is not right. You know, <laughs> with people kind of following their, their um, just sense of call or the reason they were put on this planet and like giving themselves to this kind of work should not be overwhelmed, fatigued and burned out, you know, that like something is not right. And so that, that experience actually helped it come together even more for me. Like, I think I have something to say mm. about this stuff because no matter what is happening, there are some inner tendings, you know, that, that idea of self-care and soul care that we can all do that certainly are not going to hurt anything. And they really tend to help um, no matter, no matter what it is you're dealing with. So those were the kind of the, the streams of influence that came in um, when I started really trying to get serious about, okay, how do I put this on paper and see if I can get it out into the world? Do you have any stories of people who working with world relief, working with refugee resettlement that, you you gave them some practical tools or interactions you had with them and the work that they're doing and and um how that went and in the and how you helped them when you were uh, training them you know the yes almost always whether it's in workshops or in my clinical work one on one i what what will tend to end up happening is you know, we make kind of a goal. What are what are like three three changes you could make in the way you're living your life that would take you 10, 15 minutes at the most a day to do? You know, small tweaks sometimes can make a really big difference to people, you know, overall feeling better. So I think of um uh a young woman named, um, I'll call her Angelina, you know, she's a bit of a composite because of the nature of my work. I have to, to do that. Um, but she, she came to work with me 
um, after becoming really overwhelmed and fatigued and burned out in her life and quitting everything. So this is, this is fairly typical. Like, so it's too much. I need to, she was a college student, um, but she had, you know, she was leading um, an international student ministry um, activity. So she was in like a leader's meeting. She had like a fun club she was in. So she quit everything except the academics after she got so overwhelmed and, and kind of fatigued and burned out. And then she came to see me. And after we'd been working together for a while, um, maybe just even a month or five weeks, she, she said, I'm not feeling so great. I even miss my leaders meetings, you know, which she had felt like, Oh, they're just too much. Their time suck. And all this that she had said before. And then she found herself thinking, Oh, I wonder if it was a mistake that I quit everything. And it was, it was interesting, right? Because while there was, there were things that were untenable about her life. She needed some changes, but this kind of quitting everything also represented cutting everything out of her life that gave her fulfillment and joy and a sense of purpose. And then she felt like this complete, you know, lack in her life with those things cut out. And so I, I, what we ended up working on together with her to, to kind of stabilize and start feeling better in the beginning, um, was just introducing three things to that represented changes in her life. So she had a, a morning spiritual practice that she um, she had a time for her meditation every morning already. But what what we decided to do for thing number one, which didn't take any additional time at all in her life, was to move her phone into another room while she did that intentional prayer practice practice. Because what she realized is that sometimes. She, by her own estimation, a half to two thirds of that kind of prayer time was spent with interruptions from her phone, like intruding on that time. So it did, it felt sort of thin and anemic instead of kind of rich and grounding for her. So she made that change. Um, in the midday, there was this, this uh, expanse of her campus where she wa walked from kind of one end of the campus to the other between these two classes and she didn't have a lot of friends making that little traverse with her. And so instead of um, just kind of stewing and, you know, rumbling in her brain while she was walking across, she started listening to kind of peppy, uplifting, you know, sometimes kind of spiritual music that, that really impacted her mood. So she made that change. That didn't take any additional time. And then the third thing she instituted in her suite um, with her sweet mate, mates is that 11 o'clock every night, they would have like a five minute dance party. <laughs> so they would all you know, they would usually be deep into their studying at the time. And then the alarm would go off and somebody would choose a song and they would all, ah, you know, kind of, you know, jump around, dance together. Those were the only, those were the only changes we made in the beginning, in addition to working on the content of stuff in sessions, you know, what was a lot of stuff that was coming coming up for her but those three kind of shifts in her kind of self-care regimen made a really big difference and eventually she decided you know what I want to I want to go back to the international student ministry I was doing and rejoin those meetings like she was able to figure out how to keep the fulfilling things in her life without getting to this place of being so overwhelmed and fatigued Wonderful. Um, 
what brought you into therapy? What was your own story of many therapists go into that field for particular reasons from their own family of origin journey <laughs> they're on? What was that journey like for you that brought you into the work that you're doing today? Oh, yes. I, I like so many others, do have a story like that. Um, when I was in my, you know, early 20s, 24, maybe 25, mid 20s. Um, and I'd been married a couple of years. Um, I was in Davis, California doing campus ministry there. And my parents lived in the DC metropolitan area. And so summertime would inevitably have a visit back to the East Coast. And then over Christmas, we'd go back to the East Coast. And I realized I had such difficulty with the transition back and forth. You know, I would just come back from the East Coast to to California, to Davis, and and just really struggle to kind of ramp back up into the um, into the work we were doing. And so that's what got me into therapy. And one of the primary things I really worked on was my own relationship with my mother and figuring out what does it look like for me to be kind of remain steady and okay in the face of me living a life that she didn't really understand that well of doing this campus ministry thing um, are sort of moving outside the unspoken, often unspoken kind of rules of my family by doing something a little bit, you know, on the, on the margins of what my family felt like would be normal um, or respectable. So that work was so foundational and so helpful to me um, for my own kind of sense of who I was and who I was becoming and, you know, growing more deeply comfortable with that. But also it was really helpful in just my figuring out how to relate more authentically in my family of origin, you know, to, to talk more freely about what was important to me, what was I doing with my life um, and to, and to know how to kind of stay steady when I could see, you know, the reactions of my parents kind of wondering, what is she talking about? <laughs> Why is this important to her? And, and just, okay, it's okay. They, you know, they don't understand or agree. We can still be connected and I can still be okay. So that, that was really foundational for me. All the years I was in campus ministry, I really gravitated towards kind of the one-on-one -on -one with students and inevitable conversations about their own relationships with their parents and roommates and romantic relationships and all the, all the, what am I going to major in existential questions. And, and I really loved that part of the work. And eventually that's what drew me into wanting to move into therapy and spiritual direction in my own vocation. I see. Uh, you mentioned, you know, you were in ministry and, and helping students with the existential questions of life. What was your own spiritual journey like? Did you grow up in a religious home? What was the questions you were answering? How, how did you come to embrace your particular faith tradition? How was that? I grew up as pastor's kid in the deep South in Alabama in the United Methodist Church. And it was a wonderful foundation of just a deep, deep abiding sense of God being loving and love. 
and having the beloved kind of community around like a, a, a lot of contact and and sense of being you know held and appreciated and celebrated in community in that church community um my father died when i was eight years old um, of leukemia and we stayed in the church where my father had been a pastor for a number of years and then my mother remarried and we moved to the dc metropolitan area and into um, another United Methodist Church, but the journey kind of through my life was one, and especially in the church I went to in Arlington of just kind of increasingly um, theologically liberal stances on things. So I, before I went to college, I would say the church I was in was theologically almost like a universalist, you know, church. Um, when I went to college or before I went to college, I had had really a big heartbreak, you know, of a relationship ending with a boyfriend that had been very important to me. And it sent me into my own kind of existential swirlings, like what's really real and what's really true. And if, if there's something true about Christianity, then I probably can't like do something like I was doing at the time, like pick up the Bible and like decide if I agree with a verse, it's true. And if I don't agree with it, it's not true. I, I began to see like this, this isn't very intellectually satisfying to me. Uh, so when I went to college, I felt determined. I really wanted to figure out, well, what do I really believe? Um, so I, I did some exploration. I ended up in, um, an intervarsity Christian fellowship, small group Bible study where leaders were having us kind of look at a text and asking questions, you know, for us to find the answers to in the text. And I remember just thinking, this is remarkable. Like the answers are actually right here. <laughs> and this is really something. And, and so for me, it, that was the beginning of kind of uh, a, a journey of learning more about what who jesus was and in the gospels which i'd never done all that much work in even though i'd grown up in the church and um and learning like what it meant to become a true follower of jesus and and so over the course of you know my freshman year especially i i really grappled with that and ended up thinking i i, I actually want to be a follower of jesus um mm -hmm his life and ministry and being is so compelling to me. And, and so that it was through that experience that I, you know, was able to identify myself as a follower of Jesus. And we've been walking together ever since. Was well, part of take a little break. You're listening to intersections and we have with us Janice McWilliams, who's the author of the book, restore my soul, reimagining self care for a sustainable life. Um, you had mentioned your own kind of journey and moving to DC and asking questions of your own faith. And do you think having your father pass away at a young age impacted you as a pastor? You know, did you ask questions about how could God allow that? And was that a struggle for you? Was that part of your journey and the questions you were asking? No, not as a child. Um, I, 
I don't remember having a big reaction against God during in the aftermath of his death. Um, I really think that my questions about the nature of Christianity um, and how it must work started to kind of burn inside me in, in, in high school. And, and then kind of looking at more at the person of Jesus beginning in college, but like those were all the big kind of earth moving, you know, shiftings that, that were really big for me. I didn't really have a big existential crisis about God when, when my father died. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know what to say about that, except thanks be to God, you know, that would have been an additional layer of difficulty. I always felt like God was there. Um, and did not have that particular struggle. Yes. Okay. Um, in your, in your book, um, Re restore my soul you talk about you have a chapter on um establishing soul restoring rhythms of life um what what do you mean by that what what and what is that what does that mean and then how does that look in your life what are your own soul restoring rhythms that you have yeah well i'm glad you asked that because the one thing that i've become very passionate about is in the writing of this book and then just in the presenting about it and talking to people about it is that um, a lot of people are coming to the table either being really, really afraid to ever slow down in their lives or really, really afraid to ever speed up in their lives. <laughs> and, and, um, and I don't want anyone to be afraid of either. So I know in, in my, you know, kind of the, the world of, um, psychology and, and therapy, you know, we taught what, what we know to be true is that there's nothing wrong with working hard or long hours or moving really fast and having a lot going on. Um, the problem with that is if it is unrelenting and it never changes, that's really can get very bad for you because you chronic adrenal output and stress hormone just constantly kind of coming at you. So it's the unrelenting moving fast that can be really problematic for our health and well-being. So knowing how to, and not being afraid of moving fast and moving slow is, that is, that is what I'm trying to help people understand. And, and so people have like a, you know, even, even the whole idea of self-care as it's billed, you know, by the society really kind of irritates me because what, what it's purporting is doing something that represents com a complete departure from your life you're living, which is unsustainable. Right. And then like coming to a screeching halt and doing something like a spa day or a fishing trip when you're at the point, point of burnout and about to lose your mind, you know? So, so then you should full stop, you know, do the thing that's usually really time consuming and very expensive. And then, resume your unsustainable life right after. So those self-care um, things, which there's nothing wrong with, you know, the fishing trip or the spa day. I like, I like that stuff, but it, it's so much better if it's functioning to replenish you 
and not just as recovery, right? So I want people to know how to put those rhythms in their lives in the big picture, like in the yearly rhythms and the monthly rhythms and weekly rhythms. But the thing I find that people aren't thinking quite as much about is in, in the moments and hours of their days so that their days feel better consecutively. So therefore a week will feel better, you know, because of those strung together days. And so I love talking to people about this metaphor that has come to my mind called um, hormone soup. So it, it's, it started with um, something that probably all of us experienced at one time or another, where I was um, living in a house with a bunch of different people and my housemate made tortilla soup and she accidentally put a tablespoon of cayenne in the soup instead of a teaspoon of cayenne in the soup. And so while you want a little bit of cayenne in your soup, the tablespoon was way too much for us. And, you know, we couldn't eat more than about three or four bites before we had to just call it, you know. Um, Similarly, if you think of your body as a vat of kind of hormone soup, if you will, that you're cooking every day. And if you have at your um, disposal, two basic sets of ingredients. You have stress hormone and you have happy hormone, let's just say. So you have um, stress hormone you're dumping in, you have happy hormone you're dumping in. Um, then seasoned chef will, t- will will tell you when you are making soup that's too spicy, it's got, you know, if, if it has too much stress hormone, let's just say, you can actually salvage the soup by adding things to the soup. You don't just necessarily have to throw out the soup. You know, you can put yogurt in there to mellow out the spices um, or put brown sugar or potatoes might soak some of the spices. So you might be able to eat that soup if you put enough stuff in it Mm. that I would say is kind of represented by the happy hormones. So, So in having soul restoring rhythms in a given day, that's where things like my experience with Angelina that I was talking about before come in. Like, what are things that you can put into your day that really might make a pretty big difference in how you feel because it represents you varying your speed, so to speak. You know, maybe you are, it's go time at work, you're working hard, but you know how to downshift in the middle of the day and have a mindful cup of tea. You know, you know how to end your day with a slow taper into bedtime instead of just running up to the point of exhaustion where you just collapse in a heap. Um, so there are a lot of things that you can do um, to to add that happy hormone into your life. And at different times in your life, you'll need it more than others. Because frankly, depending on what's going on in your life, you might be starting out every day to make this hormone soup with soup stock that already has a bunch of cayenne in it, you know, through no fault of your own. Um, One message I really get impatient with that the culture puts out there is like, you know, just eliminate the stressors from your life, life and relax. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Sure. Sure. Okay. Sometimes that's good advice, but sometimes you just can't eliminate the stressors, you know, with um, systemic, uh, injustices, for instance, or, um, or, or illness or job problems, you can't just eliminate every stressor that comes along. Um, so knowing how to tend yourself 
so that you basically have really palatable soup all day long as much as possible is absolutely key. So I'm, I'm very excited to help people see with, without so much time or without a lot of expense, what are the things you can put into your life that will help? Um, so for me, I know that the way I start my day is really, really significant to how I feel for the whole day will unfold. So I have a time of prayer in the morning. I have time of exercise in the morning. Those are like, if I don't, if I go too many days missing one or both of those, I'm going to start to feel it over time. You know, it's really, really helpful being in contact with some key dear friends through text, um, through phone chats. This is also really helpful to my overall sense of well-being. you know, so having just a moment of contact is is really really helpful to me in in feeling my hormone soup is adjusted. I know in the beginning of the pandemic, when um, everyone like me was experiencing moving our entire practices online, um, and that represented a, sh a shift. I, I did I did see some people for telehealth, but it was definitely a shift to move to everyone being online. But the other big thing that was happening is that the people coming to therapy a lot of times needed to talk about how difficult it was to deal with the pandemic. And I was dealing with that too, you know, so doing, doing therapy with people, trying to help them process what I myself was processing. That's like a whole different, more exhausting, weird therapy to do. And so I, I had a group supervision um, time you know, near the beginning of the pandemic when we were talking about, oh my gosh, this is so hard. Like, how do we, how are we going to take care of ourselves through this? And so I decided in that conversation that in between sessions, when I normally like check my email or make calls or, you know, or write notes or something that I was going to try to, in between every session, do basically a sun salutation, like do, you know, some body stretches, a you know, along with a breath prayer kind of ritual that I started doing. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't believe how a small intervention like that, because it probably took me three minutes to do that in between sessions. And maybe I did it, you know, I probably didn't make it between every single session, but maybe I did it four times, you know, in a day. My body and my spirit, you know, just felt better at the end of those days when I was doing that small thing that did not even take 15 minutes of my day to do. biggest struggles with soul restoring practices that you encourage others to implement in their life and that you're working on yourself but are there any ones that that you're trying to work on that are most difficult for you i i write about the realm of thoughts in my in my book and i think this is probably for me personally though the area that i will forget <laughs> 
forget everything I've written <laughs> in here <laughs> most readily and just slide into the natural, um, you know, the ruts and the roads, so to speak, the neural pathways that are most natural for me that I've developed since childhood of um, the kind of self-talk or even as I, um, I, I say in the book, who is inviting me, who or what force is inviting me to think, you know, is this, is this God or the Holy Spirit inviting me to think, is this my best self inviting me to contemplate or is this the voice of anxiety or is this my inner critic or is this the voice of despair, you know, kind of it's despair pulling me into this thought and despair is particularly, uh, habitual for me. Hmm. And, um, I, I, and, and I'm not kidding that this happened, but recently I had somebody that I was in a little group with listening to me share about what was going on. And the, and then the, the friend very gently was saying, you know, well, I, I recently read this book that seems to address that very thing you're dealing with. <laughs> and then I was like, Oh, what book? Oh, wait, you're talking about my book. I, you know, it's just one of these moments of like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but I'm not remembering this, but though the, some of the ways we think are so deeply ingrained that it, it is, we cannot address them without an, an intentional effort. And that's why, you know, I'm so careful in my book to outline exactly how you might go about doing that because it's hard. And even though I know it, I work with my clients all the time with it. I wrote it in a book. I still forget, you know, and, and slide right back into kind of the, the voice of despair, you know, Oh, you'll never, you'll never blank. You'll always be blank. There's no point in blank, you know, whatever that, that just, that's just where my brain pulls. Mm-hmm. I guess part of it is realizing what those voices are, being able to identify those so you, you see, you see that rather than think that that's who you are, or that's tells what really is true. It seems like that's part right. of the journey there as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you also talk about, um, uh, you end your book with a, about living a life of fulfillment, mm-hmm. um, that term. And what do you mean? I mean, are there, are there conceptions of fulfillment that are kind of common in our culture that you're challenging and what that means? Um, what it means to live a life of fulfillment. What is your approach on that issue? Well, I have a couple of thoughts about that. Um, one is, yeah, and these are the trends I see in my office. Um, one relates to the story of Angelina that I was saying before. I feel like I'll have a lot of, a lot of times my clients will come in and their lead will be, you know, something's, you know, something's not working. I've got a move out of my apartment, quit my job, end my significant relationship, have massive boundaries with my parents or whatever. They're, they're coming forward, feeling frustrated about something. And they're, they're um, starting place for conversation is sometimes like, I, I've got to have a hard stop on this. I'm going to go nuclear on this, this thing. And, and the conversations are really rich and good as we kind of walk through, okay, what do you mean? What's going on? And a lot of times what we get to is like, wait, wait, but if you, if you quit this thing, like Angelina quit the, you know, the, the international student thing that she was doing that, that is, it would make her less, uh, you know, busy potentially not to have it in her life, but it's also 
something that brings her the greatest joy and fulfillment to do. Um, or, you know, problems come in a relationship and okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to, you might get to a point where you need to end that relationship. Certainly. But this might not be the time. <laughs> like, is, it, is it possible that things could be tweaked in this relationship or you could try to repair, you know, whatever went wrong and see, because, you know, from what I can tell the last several times you've talked about this relationship, it's been a source of great fulfillment and joy, you know? So, so there's, 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 um, helping people, um, maybe not get so scared when, when things go wrong, that maybe they've gone astray and they've got to like do this massive correction to their life. Sometimes it doesn't, sometimes that's needed. Don't get me wrong. It's, it depends. It's case by case and situation by situation, but a lot of times it feels like it's a, it's a reaction of fear that people um, are having in a moment thinking that if, if something's gone bad, it must all be bad. Right. And, and trying to look at the nuance more, but wait, this is a place of joy and fulfillment for you. So can we, can we look at that? Um, another way I see it is that a lot of times, and this is related to the first one, but people have um, every, all the big things in their lives are in place that are for fulfillment, but they just don't feel like connected to it. You know, they have a job that's a good fit. They've married the the person they were deeply in love with that is well suited for them. They have um, children that they adore, but they just don't feel connected to it. Mm-hmm. And, and so sometimes I think um, a couple of things come to bear to, to mind, but people are losing the art of truly being present to things and, and being able to therefore experience more fulfillment in what they're doing or how they're relating, um, how they're connecting with their kids. And, and sometimes their inability or their sort of lost art of being fully present is, is often related to their habits with their phone. Um, and, and don't get me wrong. Like I'm not, I'm not, am I'm not anti-phone because the phone is a conduit to connection and, and fulfillment, you know, so the phone, the phone can be awesome, but the constant kind of distraction and pull of it and the habitual reaching for it and letting yourself be interrupted, like that robs us of fulfillment. So even again, a lot of times it's small tweaks, but, but like I've talked to, um, parents of little kids who, who've made a decision. Okay. I'm not going to bring the phone into the bathroom when I'm giving the kids a bath. I'm just going to like actually delight in, you know, playful bath, bath time and like be, be there, be fully present. And then it, it ends up being kind of a laughing, fun, you know, giggly time as a special kind of bonding time. Whereas like, even though you know, with the dangers of the water splashing and everything, a lot of parents have their phone, they'd be on their phone while their kids are in the bath. I mean, again, it's not that there's never any case where the, that, that makes sense to do, but it's just that, are you missing the ability to feel fulfilled in a connection because you're, you know, feeling so urgent about that work email or just, are you just clicking, you know, clickbait 
um, entrapment, you know, like, <laughs> that you're just kind of going through, or even another way I see this happening a lot um, more in the work side of things is that people don't feel very confident in themselves or don't experience themselves having really focused work time very, very frequently because of the interruptions of their phone. It's kind of like the focused prayer time that I was talking about with Angelina. Like, you know, I, I had a workshop where I was asking um, some young adults, like, how long does it take you to plan uh, a meeting? And they're like, you know, I don't know, as long as I have basically. And I'm like, okay, for, you know, in that one hour meeting, it'd be great if you had the confidence to, to say, you know, I, depending on what you're trying to get done in the meeting. Yeah, I can, I can plan that in 30 minutes, but they didn't often didn't have that because whatever planning time they have, there's so many interruptions that they're allowing to come that they don't have a sense of like, ah, I worked hard. I finished. Yeah. Great. I did it. You know, it's like this endless, endless endeavor that's interrupted, you know, by a text, by a headline, by any kind of notification coming up. And so therefore you just don't get that feeling of fulfillment. Like I worked hard and I did it. Yes. Are, are there been studies done about this whole idea of multitasking yeah. and the effects of multitasking? On yeah, us? absolutely. And when when we are interrupted, it takes us considerable time to re-engage at the same level again. Mm. And so, you know, there's no getting around it. The research shows that to be the case. And so again, I don't, I don't know that I've heard very many talk about it as then a disruption to fulfillment, but I absolutely think that's the case. Like if you lack confidence that you can get work done that's fruitful and get it done quickly. If you don't ever have the experience of feeling good about productive work, then you're missing this whole chance of being fulfilled. Mm. Just like if you, if you're never fully focused at the dinner table with your family, you know, but you're looking at your phone and only half hearing your kids tell the story of their day or your wife or right. husband telling about what happened in their work day or something. If you're only half there, you're not going to feel as good at the end. You yeah. just won't. Yeah. Interesting. You're listening to intersections and we're talking with Janice McWilliams, who's a therapist, speaker, spiritual director, and the author of the book, restore my soul, reimagining soul care for a sustainable life. Um, I noticed in your writing, you, you write uh, the phrase that's kind of caught me, you would take vulnerability over regret any day. What do you mean by that? Hmm. I'm trying to think of in which section of the book I wrote that. Um, vulner to be open-hearted and deeply connected is it requires a certain amount of vulnerability. You're when you take down the self-protection and and allow yourself to be fully attentive to another human being or to what you're doing, you open yourself up to the the vulnerable um, risk that you won't be met by your beloved on the other side of your 
attention and focus that your thing you've worked on and prepared might be a, a failure <laughs> or, or a flop or something. You, you set yourself up for the possibility of disappointment and, um, and that's vulnerable, but to live with the regret of not leaning into my relationships in that way are giving myself to the realities of hard work and um, that that kind of regret ugh, that's the soul killing stuff I really I really that sucks fulfillment and joy and and kind of sense of filled soul life that I so want to be living. that you are you do spiritual direction and mm-hmm. right people listening here uh, on our program that don't really know what that means uh, it sounds like an intriguing term explain to, to to our listeners what spiritual direction is sure well I I, I often mm-hmm. will look at a therapy comparison because I do work in couples therapy and in individual therapy so in individual therapy you're really dealing with the problems of the individual But in couples therapy, the client, if you will, is really the relationship, right? So you're, you're really tending to, how are these two connecting? You know, how's this going? What, what are the blocks and obstacles there? So in spiritual direction, the client, if you will, (laughs) is the person's relationship with God. And, and so tending that, what are the blocks there? What are practices that would be helpful? What is stale and not working? Um, and so you're really tending to that, that sense of spiritual experience and connection with God. Not so much, you're not, you're not doing as much like solving the person's problems in their, in their functioning life, but it's like, while all those problems are happening, what are you sensing in your relationship with God? What are the nudges that are happening there and, and talking about that? So that's, that's how I like to describe it. I see. Um, and you also work in something called brain spotting. What is, what is that term brain? I'd never heard that before. What is brain spotting work? Um, okay. So therapy practice, and some people may have heard of EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And there are some practitioners who out of doing EMDR work, um, which involves movement of the eye across the eye field while you're doing internal work. Um, some practitioners of EMDR discovered that when their clients um, held their gaze in one place that there seemed to kind of open up some um, kind of new, new pathways to, 
to doing the therapy work. So brain spotting kind of has been born out of EMDR and it basically relates to um, finding activation around something that you want to work on. So say maybe if I were came to work on my relationship with my mother, we'd talk enough so that I started to feel something inside. Like maybe I felt like a tightening in my chest and then the practitioner gets out a pointer and starts moving it around in the, in the field, the visual field of the therapist until, I mean, in the visual field of the client until the client feels that physical sensation increase. And then, then when you feel that, that's where you hold your gaze, right. And, Mm -hmm. and you do the work from there. So it's basically, um, it's, a treatment modality that is used for, I mean, all kinds of processing, but certainly um, to to work on trauma and um, is something that I've found to be useful in my practice. I see. Do you find with uh, the pandemic the last few years, and um, you also mentioned the, the predominance of technology, but particularly with the pandemic um, with younger people, has that, have that, have you noticed an increase in, in, anxiety issues and mental health issues among young people in your practice? Yes. Um, I've also noticed an increase in people's young people's willingness to um, admit it and their conversant knowledge of it and being able to recognize it inside. So, so there's like, uh, is there, is there more anxiety and depression um, in young people now? Yeah. They're, there actually might be. And on top of that, we've kind of demystified or debunked, you know, mental health issues in a really good way that liberates people to talk about it more freely. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I think that some of my um, messaging that, that, that I feel like really connects with the Gen Z generation is is this thing of like, I'm afraid to move fast because I might, you know, it might blank, 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 exhaust me, overwhelm me, what have you. Um, or I'm afraid to move slow because then I might miss every opportunity, get far behind, not have any hope for the future. And so being able to work with with um, young people around, no, 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 you're okay. You, you were created with the capacity to move both fast and slow. Jesus moved fast and slow, you know, if, for those of, of them who were followers of Jesus, like it's okay. <laughs> as long as you do both, right. You need to have the variation in your life. Um, and so I'm, I'm finding a lot of traction kind of for that mentality. I see. Hmm. And you, you mentioned, you write, you work and you write for both people with faith, with some kind of faith or spiritual tradition and those who might not have that? Um, how does that look differently? Were you, as you, you, as you come from a Christian perspective in your own beliefs, how do you interact differently with people who come with a faith tradition and those who might not, or or from a different faith? You know, honestly, the the four realms of soul restoring self care that I talk about in my book: the thoughts, emotions, rhythms, and fulfillment. I talk with my clients, or I present to groups where people come from a faith background and people don't. And all four are incredibly relevant, whether you're coming from a faith perspective or not. 
Where it becomes different is more in the, in the application of the practices where someone from a faith tradition might easily and be really, really helped by understanding it from a bit of a theological frame or through the context of their own relationship with God and spiritual practices. Um, and people who don't, there are still so many ways to apply the principles that that aren't necessarily in that realm of things, but more like in the kind of cognitive um, understanding, the understanding of emotions, how to experience them, and certainly creating rhythms or finding fulfillment. Um, you, you know, both audiences benefit so much from doing it. And, and everything that is written about in my book, it comes from many, 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 many hours sitting with people who are believing people and people who are absolutely not. And, and so there's nothing that I've written about that doesn't relate in both realms. I see. How do, how do your personal beliefs as a Christian impact what you do, how you, how you do your work, whether writing, speaking, uh, your therapy, um, how do your beliefs shape who you are as, as a therapist? Um, my beliefs undergird, maybe, maybe there's a way I would say my, my beliefs help me see each person with eternal value beloved by God, whether that is my client's frame or not. And so I think the primary way I experience that is just an increased love and a hope and expectation that, that God does not want suffering, unnecessary suffering for any of God's beloveds. And so that, that propels me to do my work, to bring the best that I can into the therapy room and into practice. Mm -hmm. Do you have any um, final words for listeners might be listening and struggling and now and need some soul restoration, any things they can do a lot of what you've shared are things you could put into practice tonight mm -hmm. or tomorrow, any last words of encouragement to people who might be listening, who could use some words of, of hope and encouragement. It does not have to take that long or be incredibly difficult or expensive to make some small changes in your life that might make a big difference in how you feel. The hormone soup reality is real. Putting more happy hormone, and again, that's a broad term. It doesn't necessarily mean ha ah, happy, but you know, fulfillment or tweaks in the way your patterns of thinking or dealing with emotions. All of these things can make a big difference in how you feel. Um, and they don't have to represent some impossible and burdensome amount of work. So I'm passionate about that. I have um, a list of 50 soul restoring self-care ideas that take five minutes or less that you can find and write this down at hormonesoupresource.com. And you can get those. It's like a little planning guide and it has like 50 ideas and you can, you know, and you can 
use those ideas to be catalysts to thinking of your own, if there are things that, that come to your mind that you can put into your day um, that, that really might help you feel better. No, no matter if you're um, just going through a really a big crunch time at work um, or a real devastating problem in your family life, like there are things that, that could help sustain you and buoy you as you go through that. So I really hope everybody will get that resource and think through like, what's okay. What's my own hormone soup, you know, recipe, if you will, going to be, um, to help me learn to feel a bit better and not get to this place of overwhelm, fatigue and burnout and quitting everything, um, that can be such temptation. Well, thank you so much for being with us on intersections. Oh, thank you, Seth. And and I do I do hope people will check out my book. Um, I'm passionate about getting it to the hands of people who really want to learn about some restoring self-care. Absolutely. Janice McWilliams is a therapist, spiritual director, speaker, and the author of the book, Restore My Soul, Reimagining Self-Care for Sustainable Life. Thank yes. you so much. Okay. Thanks for having me, Seth. Thank you for listening to this episode of Intersections. To subscribe, click follow in your podcast app and make sure to leave a review. All archived podcasts and information about our guests can be found on our website, intersectionspodcast.org. On our website, you can also listen to Faith Matters radio conversations featuring panels of spiritual leaders discussing how their faith traditions approach a variety of topics. You can contact Intersections by emailing info at intersectionspodcast.org. I'm Seth Shapiro, and join us on our next episode where we will continue exploring the crossroads of ideas on intersections.